Father, this text reminds us that we are weak and vulnerable, and we are in need. We need your protection. We need your wisdom. We are in a warfare. It is a warfare that involves our minds. It's a warfare of thought. It's a warfare of truth. And we are susceptible every day. We pray for our children, for our grandchildren. We recognize that throughout all of time, as we'll even see this morning, the deception is the primary tool of the evil one. And so we ask for an exaltation of your truth. We know that your word is truth. In a very real sense, Jesus, you are the tr- word, the truth, the life. And so we ask that as a result of our being together today as a church, as individuals living in this time, in this space, in this place, we pray that we would know the insight that comes from your word and your word alone. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us individually and who especially delights in empowering the gathered church. And we pray that he will work in powerful ways even today. Lord, as we think of our need, we know there are many who are hurting, some in our church family who are grieving, others who are struggling with recovery from surgery, with unexpected illnesses. Many others struggle with financial stresses. We have families who are in the middle of raising children and all of the chaos that that entails. Lord, we have college students and we pray for them as they seek to live for you on the campuses and all these lives and the others that we don't know to mention this morning. We pray that you would be both a comfort and where there is need, we pray that you would strengthen, even correct, rebuke, if that's needed. We pray that this church family would experience your presence in unusual ways. And Lord, we come now to the word. We pray that your word would be held high and that its truths might be applied to our lives, that we might not be forgetful hearers, but faithful doers. And we thank you through the name of Jesus, for it is indeed in his name, through his sacrifice, through his grace, through the righteousness we have from him. It is only in his name that we can ask these things and expect your kind answer. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We come this morning to Genesis 3. It's the story of the tempting serpent. And I can never read this story anymore without remembering a story I heard many years ago. Supposedly, it's true, there was a first grader sitting in class as a teacher was reading the story of the three little pigs. And she came to the part of the story where the first pig was trying to acquire building materials for his home. So she said to her class, and so the pig went up to the man with the wheelbarrow full of straw and said, pardon me, sir, but might I have some of that straw to build my house with? Then the teacher, being a good teacher, asked the class, and what do you think that man said? And a little lad raised his hand eagerly and said, I know, I know. He said, holy smokes, a talking pig. (laughs) We're in Genesis 3 this morning. Holy smokes, a talking snake. What are we to make of that? A snake that talks. Our text this morning is the first sin among our race. And it's interesting that it's not so grievously evil. It's not an instance of shocking immorality. Rather, if you look at it honestly, it's an act of incomprehensible folly. It's a foolish choice. And the roots are not found in what we often trace roots for our disobedience. Because sometimes we blame our environment, but Adam and Eve could not do that. Sometimes we blame heredity, uh, the the traits, the the family, the the nurture that we experience. Adam and Eve, they couldn't claim that. 
They were in a state of blessedness, in a state of provision, in a state of perfection, and yet they still yielded to deception and temptation. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And as you turn there, I would remind you that in chapter 2, we saw the, uh, one of the key markers in the book of Genesis. In verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That's Moses' way of saying, let me tell you what happened to the heavens and the earth. You look around and you wonder, how did we get to where we are? And the Bible is saying, here in a first step, I will tell you, the word of God will reveal to us how we got where we are. This is what happened. This is what became of the heavens and the earth. And so we've looked at the specific creative acts of God from day six, and uh, Pastor Dave concluded that last week with the institution of marriage. So we come now to chapter three, and to begin our reading this morning, let me go back up into chapter two and start with verse 25. So our reading will begin in Genesis 2, verse 25, and we'll read down through verse 8 this morning. And as I read, I remind you, this is God's word for us today. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You're not reading this story accurately unless you catch an overwhelming sense of sadness and heartbreak. Such an insignificant act, at least apparently. Such an act that would have appeared so harmless. And a command that should have been so easy to obey. Just one command. And yet, Adam and Eve willfully, even deception, Adam in his will, willfully sin against their creator, and immediately, they're plunged into a sense of alienation, guilt, and shame. This should be read with broken hearts. This should cause us to grieve. But also, along with that sadness, we have to be honest. We need to read it with a, with a sobering sense of vigilance. Excuse me, With a, with a, a sober sense of, of danger. That we need to be vigilant. Because if they fell, how much more vulnerable are you and me? If they yielded to the deception of temptation, if they yielded to the desire to be their own God, how much more are you and I prone to that? They only had an external tempter. We have the sin that dwells within us. We live in a culture that is given over to the exaltation of man and the rejection of the creator. And we have the influence also of demonic forces. How much more vigilant do we need to be? Indeed, this is what we find in Scripture. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 2, talking about forgiveness of those who had offended him and had offended the Corinthians, says in verses 10 and 11, 
Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be, you see the words, outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Well, sometimes we are, aren't we? Sometimes we're forgetful. Sometimes we're careless. And Paul's implying here that if you don't stay vigilant, speaking here in the matters of forgiveness, but really it's all across the scope of our lives, that if we don't stay vigilant, if we don't stay aware, we have the danger of being outwitted by the evil one. We should not be ignorant of his designs. Now, where are we in all of this? How alert, aware are we to deception? What does this look like for us? Today, we're going to see one primary truth. We're going to see what happens when what God the Creator and Lord says becomes a matter for debate. That's at the heart of what we find in Genesis 3. What God says, in other words, His Word, when it becomes a matter for debate, we're in trouble. Let's see what we can learn today from this text. Let me show you, first of all, what we learn about Satan. And I'm not using the term serpent because it is undoubtedly Satan, the evil one, the tempter, working behind or through the snake or the serpent. Look in verse 1 again. It says in Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent, he's not yet a snake. Later on in the chapter, he is cursed to crawl on his belly. We don't really know what his manifestation was, the manifestation of this creature, the serpent. The Hebrew word kind of implies a sense of dazzling, and so the scholars have believed throughout the centuries that whatever the pre-fall status of the serpent was, it's nothing like the creepy snakes. And please don't come up to me and defend snakes this morning. They're just creepy. All right? So, <laughs> so before the fall, the serpent had some kind of manifestation that evidently was appealing and glorious. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. The word crafty, by the way, is a play on words with naked from the previous verse. Uh, in Hebrew, they sound very much the same. So it's a pun in Hebrew. Uh, the people were naked. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. By the way, the servant, serpent was crafty, and the Hebrew words sound very similar. It was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, also note, that there's no question that this serpent and the energizing power behind the serpent, by implication, was not in any way equal to God. In fact, the serpent was not supernatural. The serpent was a creature that had been made. And somehow it was energized by the evil one. And here is the woman, Eve. We'll use her name. She's not named till later in the chapter. But here we have Eve who was, I don't know, was she surprised that a serpent was talking to her? Was she curious? Is it possible that God had already communicated to Adam and Eve the existence of angels? And maybe she thought this was an angel? We don't know. It's one of those unanswered questions. But what is clear, what becomes clear in the text later in chapter 3, and then it becomes clear in all of the rest of the Bible, was that this was not a serpent speaking. This was the evil one utilizing the form of a serpent or more likely even possessing the literal body of a serpent in order to tempt and deceive Eve. And so we have to ask the question, if it's not just a serpent, if it indeed is Satan, how do we know that? Well, because the Bible tells us. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we read, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Deceiver, ancient serpent, it is Satan, it is the devil. Well, where did Satan come from? Well, that's a very legitimate question. And one far wiser and more learned than me has said, to my knowledge, no one has satisfactorily explained where Satan came from. Many scholars and many Bible students who take the Bible seriously believe that in both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, there are hints of the spiritual rebellion in heaven. But others disagree with that because those are descriptions of human leaders and they may just apply to the human leaders. But it does seem to show an attitude of exaltation and trying to exceed that glory of the Creator Himself 
And so many have believed that those two passages point to the origin of Satan. And the idea is that Satan was a holy angel, or he was an angel before the fall. He was God's prime minister, as it were, but he tried to exalt himself to the level of God. We don't know the answer because the focus of Genesis, it's the book of beginnings of this world. It doesn't necessarily explain everything about the celestial world. The book of Genesis is talking about our identity and our sin and our redemption. And so we have to say, we wish we knew, but we just don't know for certain where did Satan come from. We don't know when Satan fell either. We know that all of God's initial creation was good. Some believe that he fell between day seven, the day of rest, and this event in Genesis 3. If you believe as I do that the universe may well be old, and the earth itself was created in a limited space of time, then it could be that God created the spirit beings, and they were already in existence. They sang at the morning of creation, for example. When Adam is put in the garden, he is told to keep or guard the garden. The implication might be that there is some potential attack against the garden. We don't know, though. One way or another, this is what we do know. Satan was the first apostate. He was the first one to, to tread the path of exalting himself in rebellion to equality with the Creator. He was the first to be self-deceived with the lie that he could be as God. That's the term he uses with Eve. He's the first. He's the prototype, as it were. Now let me give you a couple of incidental observations about this as well. First of all, we assume this is early in creation. The reason is because there's not yet been conception or birth. But again, anything we say about Genesis 1 through 3, it's all before the fall. And so we don't know exactly how all of that might have tracked out. But the second observation that I want to point out is that Adam and through Adam, Eve also, listen carefully, they were to have dominion over the serpent. In fact, Adam had named the serpent. Adam had been part of that process, and in naming him, he was exercising dominion. And yet here, what we find is that both Eve and Adam succumb to leadership from, at least by appearance, one that they were to have dominion over. The third incidental observation is that the serpent, not to mention Satan, they do not reflect God's image or likeness. Adam and Eve are made in the unique image of God, not serpents and not angels. Fourth, and this is going to sound simplistic, but it's important to mention, Satan ruins everything he touches. Satan ruins everything he touches. And his first appearance in the Word of God all the way to his binding in the kingdom and then his eventual loosing from that bondage at the end of the kingdom age, he brings wreck and ruin to everything he touches. Now, what can we learn from this about Satan? In this first temptation, in this first sin, Satan himself is the actor, and again, he's speaking from the outside of Adam and Eve. But note that he has creaturely limitations. He is not omniscient. Satan doesn't know all things. He is not omnipotent. He doesn't have all power. By the way, this is a place where in, in old-time Baptist churches, somebody would be saying amen. He is not omnipotent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he's also not omnipresent because he's not God. He is limited in his, in his spatial existence. He's a spiritual being, but that doesn't mean he's everywhere. God is omnipresent. Satan is not. And so for us, I've said this for many years, teaching and preaching about this, I don't necessarily believe that Satan himself has ever bothered me. I don't think I'm important enough for that. But that brings up two corollary truths. First of all, his demonic forces do tempt and are active in the world. And secondly, there are evidently people that are important enough that Satan does tempt. We ought to pray for them. We don't know who they are. And all of the big names that pop into your mind, it's likely not someone like that. It's likely someone we've never heard of. 
But we have the problem, unlike Adam and Eve, once again, of the world system influencing us. And we have within ourselves sinful flesh, which at this time Adam and Eve did not have. And so on the one hand, they had the external tempter and a state of innocence that brought them into sin. We don't have that state of innocence. We have the evil one's minions, his forces. We have the world system. We also have indwelling sin. This shows how vulnerable we need to recognize that we are. Now, make no mistake. The Bible says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. It's another place to say amen. But nevertheless, there's a soberness to this. For example, Jesus commenting on all of this. Listen to the way he describes Satan in John chapter 8. He's talking to those who were in, in rabid resistance and unbelief to his ministry. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. By the way, how did he murder? Because he brought about death with Adam and Eve. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And you read that text and you want to say to Jesus, tell us how you really think, Jesus. It's so clear. And so 2 Corinthians 2 talks about his devices. Revelation 2 talks about some people give themselves over to the deep things of Satan. What a terrifying idea that is. Ephesians 6 talks about the wiles of the devil. He works through deception. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us this, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Here's what we learn about Satan today. Essentially, Satan's entire mode of operation is deception. He works through deception. And that brings us to the main event. Not only can we learn about Satan, but we can also learn about deception from this text. Beginning in the middle of verse 1. Deception is Satan's primary weapon. He begins with not an argument. He begins with a suggestion. He begins with a question. Here Eve is, as one commentator says, Eve is engaged by a winsome, angelic theologian. Nothing threatening in the serpent. He just wants to have a theological talk. And interestingly, at least in the record, Satan only speaks twice. The first time he speaks, his words are full of half-truths. Second time, he gives an outright lie. Look at it in verse 1, the middle of the verse. He said to the woman, did God, note it doesn't say Lord God, the personal name for God. He goes back to the name for God in his power, but not his personal relationship. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And there's a question mark after that, right? This is the first question mark in the Bible. After chapters 1 and 2, and this glorious, this wonderful demonstration of the power of the Word of God, all of a sudden a question mark comes. God speaks, it is done. God speaks, it is done. God speaks, it is done, it is good. It is good, it is very good. Wait a minute. Let's question God. Let's question his word. Let's question his wisdom. Let's question his goodness. Let's question his integrity. And the implication here is there's a divine stinginess. How has God limited you? What boundaries did God draw? Why did he do that? All of that's included in this subtle question. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, nearly all of you who have heard sermons or done Bible studies on this text, you hear preachers wax eloquent about her adding to the Word of God. Because what did God say? He said, don't eat of the tree. He didn't say, don't touch it. And so, there's a lot of people that make a big deal about this. See, she's adding to the Word of God. I don't know what we can conclude from this. Because it seems to me, 
if there's one place in the garden where I'm not to eat of fruit, it would be a helpful thing for me not only to not eat it, but also to not touch it. That's called a fence. It's fencing the danger. It's putting a barrier. Some of the older believers use the phrase like building a hedge. It's building a hedge around this temptation. And it could be that Adam had done that for his wife because husbands are to care for their wives spiritually. So it could be Adam had instructed her and said, we're not to eat of that tree, let's not even touch it. It could be. It could be that she had set that for herself. Or we have to acknowledge it could be that she was resenting the boundary of not eating and she was exaggerating the boundary. We don't really know. I will say this to you. Fencing off temptation in your own life is generally a wise thing to do. But you always need to recognize that the fence is only that. The fence is a fence. The sin is beyond the fence. And what happens is far too often, this is a whole other sermon, but far too often people who set reasonable boundaries, then they make those boundaries the moral issue. And with other Christians especially, there's conflict because other Christians don't set the same boundary that you have set. One way or another, here's all I'll suggest about this. When you move away from the precision of God's word, you can be on shaky ground. The text doesn't prove that. We, we can't necessarily condemn Eve for this. It seems reasonable to me. There's one fruit I shouldn't, shouldn't eat. I'm not even going to touch it. Regardless, look what happens. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look at the folly of this. Just don't miss it. Here's what Satan says. You want to be like God? Disobey God. The way to be like God is to disobey Him. There should have been some immediate objection to this. But there wasn't. And so this tree in the midst of the garden, it's named in chapter 2 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember its design. Remember its function. Its very existence. There wasn't anything magic about the fruit. Its existence was it had a boundary around it by God. That was the one tree they were not to eat. And knowing good was to stay away from it. Knowing evil was to disobey and eat of it. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you this quote from Kidner. In all this, the tree plays its part in the opportunity it offers rather than in the qualities it possesses, like a door whose name announces only what lies beyond it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so to stay away from it was good, to eat of it was evil. Here's what we learn about deception. At least two things. We learn that deception begins with subtle suggestion. Deception begins with subtle suggestion. All of this is very contemporary. This is very up to date. Here's what Satan is implying, is suggesting. God is holding out on you, Eve. God is not really good, Eve. Even worse, God is a megalomaniac demanding obedience and subservience. And what real harm could eating really do? Do you see that in his suggestions? It's like God supposedly is good, but he's told you to stay away from that tree. He can't really be that good. He's limiting you. You need your freedom. You need to express yourself. How contemporary is that? And what this approach does is it exaggerates God's wise prohibition while it dismisses all of his abundant provision. The great commentator Matthew Henry said, As Satan is the accuser of the brethren before God, so he accuses God before the brethren. And he suggests to Eve that God is not really good. In fact, here's what he's suggesting. Watch this. That Satan is more concerned with her well-being than her God is. 
subtle suggestion. And it's meant to do what? To sow doubt. The second thing we learn about deception is this. The deception morphs into outright falsehood. It begins with suggestion and innuendo and doubt, but then it moves into outright lies, outright falsehood. He says, you will not surely die. And do you catch this? That the first doctrine, how timely is this? The first doctrine that is denied in the history of the world is God's judgment. This is the big lie. The big lie is you can flaunt the holiness of the Creator God and get away with it. The idea that you don't have to obey, you don't have to yield, you don't have to worship. You can go your own way and you'll get by with it fine. You shall not surely die, the tempter says. There are no consequences for defying a holy God, the serpent says. And this implies a false assumption that God's will and his law and his word, they are either uncertain or unknowable or unreasonable or unfair. And isn't that the water we still swim in? Isn't that the attitude we see all around us? Deception begins with subtle suggestion and it morphs into outright falsehood. And so what we find today, far too often is what's sometimes called a hermeneutic of doubt, that it's a good thing to just hold ignorance about the Bible. We're never going to make any absolute statements. We're, we're, we're going to be humble, and we're going to say we don't really know, and that there are places where indeed we don't know because we are not God, and we are finite, and God is infinite. But a hermeneutic that's driven by doubt, that's rooted in skepticism, that's rooted in a sense of cynicism, is a hermeneutic that is just designed to make one feel sophisticated. In other words, let me say it this way, it's an approach that says, I'm going to be like God. You see, there's a false humility here. It's like, I'm, I can't say what this really means, even though God has said what it really means. And therefore, when you say, well, I can't say what this really means, you're basically saying, I know more than God. And the process is to doubt and then deny and then disobey. Someone said it this way. Eve found Satan more trustworthy than God, not because of his credentials, but because Satan told her what she wanted to hear. Anybody experience that? And so that leads us, it leads us to disobedience. What we learn about Satan, what we learn about deception... What we learn about disobedience, look in verse 6. Once the deception is done and the decision has been made, we are given a very terse summary. Note the verbs as we read verse 6. Look at it. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, we'll look at all those three levels next week. There's too much to handle this morning. But when she saw the tree, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband. She saw, she took, she ate, and she gave some to her husband. And here she is, willfully stepping beyond God-ordained boundaries. In deception, but nevertheless, making a decision under deception to willfully step beyond the boundaries that God had set. This is disobedience. And what we learn just from reading that text, is this sense that it's hard to stop. She saw, and implied in the text, she gave it consideration. She took, ate, and shared. She gave. What we learn about disobedience is that once you begin entertaining disobedience, it's hard to stop. It's like a locomotive that's going down the hill. It's not going to stop quickly. It's not going to stop easily. The old preachers used to say it this way, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay. That's what we learn about disobedience. And it's not to be toyed with. Even for those of us who are forgiven, for those of us who are 
are, are covered with Christ's righteousness and, and we know that we are, we are part of his family and yet sin can still be an issue and sometimes we, are yield, we yield and we are tempted to treat sin as though it's trivial and meaningless. But sin, listen, it will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. That's what we learn about disobedience. Let me show you what we learn about leadership in verse 6. What we learn about leadership. We've learned about Satan. We've learned about deception. We've learned about disobedience. Note here what we learn about leadership in verse 6. And she gave, the middle of the verse, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I, I think it's important to see here Eve listened to Satan, Adam listened to Eve, no one listened to God. Eve listened to Satan, Adam listened to Eve, no one was listening to God. In dealing with the Bible, in studying the Bible, and attempting to apply the Bible and then preach the Bible, there are a handful of phrases or verses in the Bible that really, really trouble me. It's all God's word, and it's glorious because it's God's revelation. But on the face of it, some of the passages just drive me insane. And this is one of them. Because what I want you to see is that there is no indication that the serpent caught Eve on her own. The only textual indication you have about the logistics of this, these words at the end of verse 6, her husband who was with her. Here's what we learn about leadership. It fails. Adam fails here. Adam was to step up and say, no! And that could not have been strong enough. That's what Adam was to do. And instead, look at it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the New Testament makes no bones about this. The New Testament is clear that it is Adam's sin which plunged us into the mess we're in. It was not Eve's. Eve was deceived. She became a transgressor, but Adam was the one that was held responsible. The theologians use the term, he was our federal head. Original sin, we'll talk more about that next week. Original sin, which passes down to everyone. It was Adam's sin, not Eve's. What do we learn here? We learn that leadership fails. We learn that Adam fails. That it's his sin that plunges us into the fall and into the curse. The New Testament makes this clear. Paul's writing in 1 Timothy 2, and he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was... The creation order is meaningful, by the way. That's the point. The order of creation is meaningful. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Romans 5 further makes it clear that Adam is the one who is held culpable, that he is the one who is held liable. And so... I know some of you, I hope some of you at least, you're thinking along with me and you're thinking, well, then what if Adam had done what he should have done? What if Adam had pulled out a Smith & Wesson and destroyed the serpent right there? Because make no mistake, that's exactly what he should have done. What would have happened then? Because Eve had sinned. She had transgressed. And the answer to that is, we don't know. It's one of the great what-ifs of the Bible. But here's what we do know. From the fact that God's electing love is eternal, that God loves his own from before the foundation of the world, and that the entire Bible is the story, Genesis included, the book of beginnings, it's the story of God's creation and fall and redemption and then deliverance or restoration, we don't know how it would have worked, but what we do know 
is that because Eve was graciously forgiven, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks, because she was graciously forgiven by the Creator God, that somehow God would have provided forgiveness for her in a way that would have acknowledged His holiness and also acknowledged her disobedience. And that brings us to the point of the gospel. Because the truth is, Adam did fail, and he sinned. And because of that sin, we are all born in sin. And then we choose to sin. And we need forgiveness. We need a spiritual covering, as we'll see. As they cover themselves with fig leaves, and God covers them with his own clothes that he provides through the shedding of blood. Undoubtedly, a picture of how costly covering is. And that ultimate cost, we know, is the life and blood of his son, who perfectly kept the law and then died upon the cross and then rose again. And he took our sins upon his body, the Bible says, so that we might know forgiveness. And this is the gospel. And listen carefully to me today. Listen very carefully to me. The gospel is transactional. That means this. If you haven't transacted with God, to acknowledge your sin and put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, you are still in your sins. You still bear your guilt. You will face God in judgment, not covered and forgiven with the righteousness that he freely offers, but you will face him naked and ashamed. And that's the reason we call you every Sunday if you're here. And a pastor's terror is that there are people who listen to him preach every Lord's Day and never in a real and personal way put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. And that's what we learn about leadership. Let me show you quickly what we learn about consequences in verse 7. We've shown you what we learned about Satan, what we learned about deception, disobedience, leadership. Now, here's what we learned about consequences. In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. By the way, at the very least, what this implies, they don't get, don't get hung up on this, the nakedness and the sexuality part. Sex is one of God's best gifts. And in that sense, I, I don't want to be inappropriate, but I just want to tell you, Adam knew Eve was naked. Eve knew Adam was naked. Suddenly they knew that themselves they were naked. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't know this before. It's a self-awareness. It's a self-consciousness. Evidently it didn't exist before sin. But when they disobey, suddenly their focus turns to themselves. They knew they were naked. There's more going on there, just a minute. And they they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they were filled with shame. They were naked before one another. Yes, that was likely a new awareness, a self-centeredness. But also, here's the point, carefully, they were naked before God. That was the problem. They were naked before God. Now they were ashamed. Their eyes were open to their sin, to their rebellion. They recognized still God's holiness. They recognized that they had transgressed His holiness. They were naked under His judgment. And listen carefully, where once they had had relationship, now they were alienated. Their nakedness caused them to try to cover themselves. They were unable to tolerate the holy gaze of the Lord God. They had moved from relationship to alienation. And so look at the sadness in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the impression is this was a regular occurrence. That God would come and fellowship with them. He had relationship with them. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you see the heartbreak? Do you see the folly? 
what we learn about consequences is there's an unescapable sadness to it. And this is the fundamental lie of deception. I can do this and I can get away with it. I can do this nobody will ever know. I can do this there won't be any consequences. And that's folly. It's folly. That's what we learn about consequences. An unspeakable, overwhelming sadness. Now we'll deal with this text more next week. And we'll look at the way temptation works with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. But to conclude this morning, let me suggest this. It is the spirit of our age. It is really the spirit of all ages since Genesis 3. It is the spirit of our age to think and to live as though, listen carefully, as though God's word is subject to our judgment. As though God's word is subject to our judgment. And in a sense, that's the fundamental issue. There were two paths that were laid out for Eve and for Adam. There are really two paths laid out for you and me. Proud autonomy and independence. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Or the humble fear of God. And those two attitudes, essentially, will def- one of those two will define your life. It'll define the path of your life, but it also will define the way you're living right now. Later on, as Moses was writing this narrative and giving it to the people of Israel, later on he says in Deuteronomy 32, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And Satan, through the serpent, said to Eve, Not really. You recognize what Satan is saying. Everybody has their own rights. Everybody gets to choose their own path. You don't want to be a Pharisee. You don't want to be a fundamentalist. I mean, don't don't worry so much about the Bible. And then he lies. You'll not die. And immediately, their relationship with their father, their creator, was alienated. And their bodies began to die. And they were under a death sentence that only the grace of God gave them rescue from. And Moses says later, learn this, learn this, God's word, God's word, it is your very life. Today's takeaway, to avoid deception, take God at his word. Take God at his word. You say, well, I don't understand so much of it. It's okay. What you do understand, take God at his word. And then find somebody who knows a little bit more than you and have them teach you. And be diligent in learning how to read the Bible and how to understand the Bible, how to apply the Bible. But one way or another, this is your life. And to avoid deception, you must take God at his word. You can take your good God at his reliable word. You can be sure. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing to us this drastic, sad act of folly 
that is the root of all of our heartache, all of our pain, all of our own sin, all of the hardships that we go through living in a cursed world. As we'll see next week, this is the way sin works. It is viral in its effect. But Father, we also thank you that your word doesn't end with Genesis 3, 8. That Adam and Eve are not left cowering in fear in the garden. That they are not left, that we are not left without a redeemer, without a savior, without a sacrifice. And so we rejoice in the promise of the gospel that we are forgiven people And at the very same time, we ask you to do a fresh and new work in our hearts to sober us about the reality of sin, about the consequences that come, about what disobedience really means, about how foolish it is to disobey and how desperate deception can be. Make us mindful of Satan his forces, this world system, and the sinful flesh that we still drag around in our lives and help us see that taking you at your word is always the path to life and promise and health and relationship as opposed to shame, alienation, separation. Lord, take us each, wherever we are right now in our lives, and move us toward that kind of relationship that you desire to have with us, where we are fighting against deception, and we are fighting and killing our sin daily, and we are chasing after holiness. Lord, do that work in our individual lives, and do it then in our church. We know that you are at work to present your church a spotless bride And so we pray, Lord, that we would experience that that purifying work in our midst. Thank you, Father, for the fount of forgiveness, the fount of every blessing that flows from your goodness and your grace. Remind us again of it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.